last uh, last time we were together, which was uh, lesson ten, we talked about sharing the gospel with our family. And uh, I want to try to quickly review. We didn't act for the first time uh, so far. We did not get through the whole thing. Um, and I'm going to try to catch us up to where what we talked about and then finish that. And then hopefully there'll be time so I can do a very, very quick version of Lesson 11 <laughs> and, and kind of get caught up. So we talked about two weeks ago why it is so stinking difficult to share the gospel with our family. And we talked about the fact that they see all of our faults and our warts. They, uh, we love them so much more intensely than we do just the average Joe off the street. So we end up getting in these super passionate discussions and then it just seems to kind of all go and blow up. We don't like to rock the boat. We love peace. And the list could go on and on. Then we transitioned and we talked about sharing the gospel with our children in our home. And, and the, the thought in our discussion was primarily kids that are in our home, young kids like the kind of kids I have. We looked at some texts from scripture such as Deuteronomy 6, Ephesians 6. And then... Uh, we leaned on the wisdom of some of the uh, veteran young people that we have here who have successfully raised children and gone through that. And to at least for those of us that have younger kids, uh, we were able to glean some wisdom. I also shared a couple things from uh, a resource called Getting to the Heart of Parenting. Um, let me pull that up just so you can get the picture in your mind again. This is the it's a kind of a it's a DVD series by Paul Tripp, and I, I, I passed on just two takeaways with respect to sharing the gospel at home. And the first was this, that we as parents have a responsibility to pass on certain things, like an offer God, a biblical worldview, the gospel itself. But in order to do so successfully, we first must possess those things ourselves. And while I don't know about you, that's an awfully convicting thing. Do I have, personally, an awe for God? Do I have a biblical worldview? Do I look at things the right way, according to the way God has taught um, and desires me to think? Do I, um, is my life being transformed by the gospel? In order for me to genuinely pass those things on, I must first possess those things. And then the second is we talked about five questions to ask our children in the process of discipline that would help us get to their heart with the gospel. I'm not going to reiterate those questions. They're kind of fun um, if you like torturing your children. Uh, but they do ultimately, if you ask them well and you have a genuine conversation, can help you get to their heart and expose their heart uh, before their very eyes so that they can see that they need Jesus. And that's an amazing opportunity to then well here he is daddy needs Jesus too and you can just present the gospel we uh, then transition to talking about and maybe this is just a personal thing but the importance of grandparents in the lives of grandchildren and specifically the importance of grandchildren in the sharing of the gospel with their grandkids we looked at the example of Timothy and his mother and his grandmother uh, and then we shifted gears and we talked, and this is where we ended, we talked about, so how do we deal with uh, unbelieving 
slash wayward children. Like, what do we do with, how do we deal with that? And some uh, folks were able to share insight who have walked that difficult road. I've lived that difficult road as a sibling um, and watched my parents uh, walk through that. And I offer just three things. These are not exhaustive by any stretch, but how do we deal with it? What principles do we live by as we try to share the gospel with unbelieving wayward children? Number one, there's not a one-size-fits-all answer if you ever find yourself in that situation. Um, what might work or might, might not work for one family uh, doesn't necessarily fit into your situation. You have to act with God's wisdom in your situation. Number two, we must attempt to walk the tightrope of grace and truth with spirit-sought wisdom. So there must be grace, there must be an extension of forgiveness and love and being super flexible. At the same time, honoring the truth of God's word and his gospel and trying to navigate and walk the tightrope of that tension is impossible to do with perfection. Um, but that's what we must do with spirit-sought wisdom and a whole ton of prayer. And then the last thing I mentioned was that as best as we can, keep the line of communication open. So no matter what happens, as much as it depends on you, keep the line of communication open. Now, Lord willing, those of us who are younger, who have young kids, we won't have to deal with that. But um, as I remember when I was walking through my divorce... No one ever prepares for those kind of crappy times in life. Like, you don't read books before you have a divorce, like, in preparing for that, right? You're not reading the book, like, Love Must Be Tough by James Dobson with the thought, well, maybe there's a chance, you know? But, like, you kind of have to do that if you're going to, like, be prepared for those really crappy times of life. Well, um, I don't want to have to prepare you for crappy times of life, but it's a reality that it might happen. And so... Even just being armed with the fact that, oh yeah, well, someone actually thought about that and mentioned something about it, it might be helpful um, down the road. So tonight, um, we're going to pick up with this question. What does the Bible have to say about sharing the gospel with an unbelieving spouse? And this is not working. This is great. All right, here we go. So, in our homes, remember that's the context in which we're discussing. In our homes, how do we share the gospel with people in our homes. And there are oftentimes in the church people who have unbelievers in their home and they happen to be the person they're married to. So how do, how do, you, how do you do that? What does the Bible say about that? <clears throat> this is not a trick question. The Bible actually does say something about it. So stay with them. Okay, stay with them. As long as they're willing to stay with you, right? Right. First Peter three. So she just quoted a text. Right in the middle, I have it underlined. If any of them do not believe the word, they must be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. Um, <clears throat> let me make a comment. We had talked about a statement earlier this year, and I'm probably going to biff it up so Larry might have to help me. But we talked about share the gospel, use words if necessary. Do you remember when we evaluated that statement? 
I don't believe that this tax is an attempt to try to support that position. I think that it's kind of assumed in this context, particularly in this close relationship, that if a wife is living with an unbeliever, it's kind of assumed that that husband knows that that wife is a believer and that knows what that believing spouse thinks. So it, this is not a text that would, I don't believe, would support, oh yeah, we'll share the gospel, just do it by your life, Don't you don't need to say anything. <clears throat> the assumption baked in is, no, the gospel has already been communicated and this person has rejected it. So now how do you deal with that in this most intimate of relationships? How do you deal with uh, sharing the gospel and continuing to share the gospel with someone who is just obstinately object, uh, rejected? And God says through Peter, win them over with your behavior. I was just going to say it because I've thought about that before and had this conversation that... I mean, it, it doesn't even imply it. It explicitly says the word was already communicated. If they don't, so you communicate the word, they don't believe it. Instead of just repeating the same thing over and over again, right? Your life now testifies of the truth of what you told them already, right? So it's the consistency of life with the with the word, with the gospel that there is a demonstration of the transforming grace of God through the gospel in a spouse's life. And I don't want to try to, like, jump. You know, I haven't studied this so intently that I can fairly jump into, like, flip the script and it's now the the uh, husband married to the unbelieving wife. But I think, I think it's a, I think it's an okay principle to kind of extract and Expand to like if you're a spouse that's believing with an unbelieving spouse, win them over by your life, by the consistency of your life with the gospel. There's an already established in our in class earlier concept uh, when it says when the scripture says, "Be ready always to give an answer to anyone." Mm -hmm. Anyone includes our husbands or our wives. That does not mean that we are to spoon feed it to them, but it does mean that when when they show any interest whatsoever in truth, be ready to share it. That goes hand in hand with living a life that reflects that you belong to God. So related to this, why do you think Peter? says that a believing spouse should win their unbelieving spouse through their pure character as to as opposed to what you just alluded to repeated attempts <laughs> or, or almost you know you could think of like badgering them with the gospel why do you think that Peter goes that route using words eventually words develop in getting into arguments negative connotations by showing your actions, it's more difficult to fight. You can't fight somebody. Oh, I see you're behaving this way. Mm -hmm. If you use words and you're always negative, it's going to be this. Yeah. yeah. Which, if you live the Christian ethic out, I mean, 
you're going to be a pretty awesome person to live with. I was going to say, I was laughing because as I was hearing Joe say that really good comment, I was picturing a frustrated husband saying, quit loving me so selfishly. Or so, so, so selfish, <laughs> yeah. selflessly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you can't argue with that. Like, yeah. you know what I'm saying? Stop making me dinner. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. No, no. <laughs> Can you think of any other reasons why Peter would turn it this way? Your actions would support what you... When you did say things, your actions would support what you're saying. Okay. Jess? You just think about a marriage relationship and, like, your spouse is going to see the real you and what really drives your actions because it's such a close <clears throat> relationship. So, you know, by showing how you live, and the difference that it makes, they're going to be able to see that and be you know, the recipient of God's grace in your life. Um, you know, just think of how close their relationship is. Like, Anthony gets the worst of my worst. You know, he sees all that, but also the best of my best. And because he gets everything. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, just think of how close it is and what that person's going to see. Not just your words, but I stand up. When when people see um, our faith lived out, it gives them a picture of the uh, reality of God. That, that God is real. That you know, especially I, I know in my situation, my husband. Neither of us were Christians when we got married. And when I became a Christian, uh, he was very upset with me. Um, but they, you know, they, that the unbelieving spouse is always looking for two things. One, they're looking for a reason to blame their spouse to take the heat off themselves, but they're also looking because they are created in the image and likeness of God and no one has an excuse in our innermost being we know that that we owe God our allegiance, our obedience and they're looking to see if it's real so I'm going to throw out um prepare you. It is a a hard truth of scripture and it's going to be one where there's going to be an internal posture when you think about um, your unbelieving spouse or your unbelieving child. Um, When you think about it in this context it's almost revolting to think about it in this way. But I think, so all of what has been said has been great and accurate. Um, But I also think there's Another reason why um, Peter talks the way he talks, and it would be found in Matthew chapter 7. This is in the Sermon on the Mount. It's in the context of a section where Jesus is um, smashing the idea of being judgmental, hypocritically judgmental. And he spends the first five verses uh, kind of wreaking havoc on how... uh, how the Pharisees were so judgmental in a hypocritical sort of way. 
And this is obviously a wrong kind of judgment, but in verse 6 he transitions in a uh, almost like a proverbial style. And he calls his audience to a right kind of judgment. And it pertains to the precious treasure of the gospel. And he says, do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. So he says, do not give to dogs. And dogs and pigs, in this context, were like the worst of the worst. They're not like my little Grady, six-pound furball, who looks like a little stuffed animal teddy bear, as cute as can be, even though he eats all my daughter's toys. It's costing me hundreds of dollars for stupid Shopkins that he just ate while I was up in Florida. And I spent like $200 to replace her Shopkins because he ate all of them because he was mad that I was gone. Like... Stupid little animal. However, yeah. So if anyone has any uh, used Shopkins, no, I've looked. I just spent a hundred dollars tonight on it, and they still have a couple hundred more to go. Five below used to have them. I don't know if they still. So I am. You can pray for me in that area because I uh, I don't kill my dog, extract them from his tummy. But dogs were not cute and cuddly. They were they were the lowest of the low. So were pigs. And here Jesus says, do not give to the lowest of the low that which is sacred, the gospel. Do not throw your pearls, the highest of the high, the gospel, to pigs, the lowest of the low. If you do, here's what's going to happen. They, the lowest of the low, are going to trample the highest of the high, the gospel, under their feet. And they are going to then not only smash the gospel and make a mockery of that, they're going to turn on the messenger as well. And that's a harsh reality, in my opinion, because it's a command. Jesus doesn't say, well, if you feel like it, or if the context is just perfectly right, he, he explicitly says, don't do this. Which means we are left to evaluate and have to really think carefully about, okay, so in what circumstance might we find ourselves when we have to apply this truth where we have to uphold the beauty of the gospel because we are dealing with someone who is so antagonistic against it. And it very well might be that in our homes or in our families that this sort of thing might actually exist. By God's grace, maybe it won't happen. But we need to be prepared. So, I'm sitting there asking my question, or myself this question. So why would we offer something so precious to those who are so antagonistic? Because why, like why, if we're in a marriage where our spouse is an unbeliever and hates the gospel, why would we want to keep pounding that person with the gospel? This isn't a trick. Why would we want to do it? Desperation. Desperation because of why? Because we love them, and that's the only thing, that's the only hope, right? Yet at the same time, Jesus says there are certain times where all we're doing is we are trampling the good news, and we are, are putting ourselves in danger of getting torn apart as the messenger. So I, I kind of think that Peter's on to something, and it happens to relate to what Jesus said said, hey, don't sit there and continually badger your your unbelieving spouse or your unbelieving family member. Use wisdom and not 
do not present the gospel when they're in such an antagonistic state. I don't think that that means that like, oh, well, they became antagonistic. Well, dang it, they're they're done. Like you just write them off. No. I don't think that that's the way to go. I think it's, as Phyllis said, you know, there's going to be times where you're always ready because there are going to be those moments because they are human, because they're made in the image of God. They do have a desire to be made right with God. Um, like they have a longing for that, even though they hate God and they, they are his enemies um, because they're made for, for more than that. So on the one hand, we want to share the good news. Yeah, on the other hand, we do so. We're putting the gospel and ourselves at risk. So I think that the, the the recipe or the path forward is a really, really difficult one. We have to na- navigate these sorts of things with spirit-sought wisdom. And that's really hard because it's not like a really good legalistic church where I say, hey, if you comb your hair the right way, and if you wear this long of a skirt, and if your blouse is, you know, up to here, and then, and your kids come to this many services, well, then you know you've achieved holy status, right? But that's not the way the New Testament works. This is, okay, I've got to navigate this really cruddy situation bathed in prayer and dependent on the Spirit of God. And you're going to get it wrong. And then you're going to have to do it all over again. So let me uh, conclude, uh, kind of start to conclude this section. So thankful, thank, thank you for taking it easy on me on that section. Um, some practical principles. There's a book entitled Bringing the Gospel Home. It's written by the same author as the book that you have in your hand, this guy. Um, Questioning Evangelism, written by Randy Newman. Well, he's written, I've found, several books on evangelism, one of which is called Bringing the Gospel Home. Subtitle is kind of hard to see, but it says witnessing to family members, close friends, and others who know you well. And uh, I've I've read through it, kind of more of a quick read. Um, I think it's it's very nice. It, it focuses on uh, grace, truth, uh, that tension, and how to navigate it. Um, but one of the things how he concludes the book, I thought it was particularly helpful. And he says, witnessing with family takes TLC, and it's not tender, loving care. It's time, love, and comprehensiveness. And here's what he means by that. He says, you need a longer-term perspective when it comes to family. You need a deep reservoir of love, and you probably need to come in the side door by presenting the gospel as comprehensive in its effects, not just as a ticket into heaven. And while that's kind of a little cliche-ish at the end, like a ticket into heaven, like any of us are going to really be just merely presenting the gospel as that. Um, But I think when he talks about this idea of comprehensiveness, it goes to that 1 Peter um, note about we are to make the gospel attractive by the way we live. Right? So it's, it's a comprehensive thing. It's as Jeff said, that person sees our highest of our highs and our lowest of our lows. And as we live that out, through the good, the bad, and the ugly, they see our character shining through and that everything we have is rooted in the gospel, even though we don't do it right. But I think that idea of time, so we got to be patient, which is super-duper hard. To love, and I, I look at my parents and I think, my goodness, the reservoir of love that they have for my sister 
has been so tremendous. And then the comprehensiveness, the fact that it has permeated every aspect of life. Um, if you need, you, you can find no better example, even though they would disagree with me, than my parents and how they've loved and shared the gospel with my sister. So let me conclude with this, uh, just two, two things. As good reminders to walk away not discouraged, but encouraged. Number one, the gospel is the power of God to salvation. Romans chapter 1, For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. So there is always hope. Because salvation is not dependent on that person and their power to convert themselves. It is dependent on the power of God. And we we spent a whole lesson talking about the sovereignty of God over that person's salvation. Number two, anyone is redeemable. There's There's no one that is so sinful, that is so ugly, that is so dead in their sins that God's grace cannot pick them up, raise them from the spiritual death that they are in, and bring them to spiritual life. Anyone can be redeemed. And that is a hope that we can all carry then as we go and we share the gospel, as we testify to that truth, as we are patient, as we're loving, as we're comprehensive in the scope of our, our, our testimony, that these people, in God's timing, can come to Christ. Yes? I think one of the saddest, really heartbreaking things I've ever heard from a person who was who was struggling through life with someone difficult in their life is when I hear them say that person will never change. It is that's just drowning in hopelessness to say that, to even think it. God can change it. Negate, it, 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 it negates the, the power of God saying that. Mm-hmm. Alright, any final comments before we move? Alright. Speed round. And if pull Larry Castle on the Tim Keller book. Try to get through all seven. I thought you were just going to give a podcast to listen to. (laughs) Yeah, we'll just give a podcast to listen to. All right, so goal of lesson 11 is to consider how we can better share the gospel at work. And I have have a very simple idea of how to do this. Um, I was going to pull, like, out a junior high teacher moment, and then I thought, you know... They're really going to hate me if I make them do this again. Because I made you break up into groups mm-hmm. about five, six weeks ago. And I could feel the angst against me <laughs> in, in those moments. Um, because I, especially from Sierra, because she was up here with Jackie, I think. And it was like Jackie's first week and Sierra hadn't been there the week before. So she didn't know what the heck was going on. And I could just feel like the eyes, you know, women have a look. And she kind of gave me that look. So... I decided I'm not going to break you up into groups again. Um, but here, it's just a simple question. But we're going to pretend like we're one big group, and then we can all talk about it and, and have a discussion and not break up into small groups and then teach each other, which is what I was going to make you do. 
and then incur the wrath. So, here's a question. What principles should guide us as we share the gospel with our coworkers? So, I want you to think. I don't want you to necessarily immediate reaction. Like, think about that. Like, the whole... You know, turn the whole idea of our work context outside of Pastor Larry because, you know, shouldn't share the gospel with Pastor Ben. Uh, but, I mean, you should, but, you know. But, like, just turn that idea around in your head and think, look at it, you know, as my boss has often said, you got to look at the whole elephant, you know, to, like, use our elephant illustration about all the blind dudes. But, like, you got to look all, you got to walk all the way around the elephant. So, Here's this elephant of sharing the gospel at work, at Comerica Bank, at Jackson Dawson, at the Salon Bellissimo, at DTE, at, I don't know where you work, Matt, is it government? I don't know, that's Sure, funny. government. Isn't it? Or VA, yeah. Veterans yeah. Affairs? Well, There's a mission field right Right? <laughs> you know, and I don't know where the rest of you work, but, uh, well, G- Greg's at JD now, but we're taking over the world. <laughs> so we all I mean we've all at least been in a work context most likely um, so what a, how do we do this Joe in my case uh, when I met my friend Spencer at Cleveland State I was at a copy machine he was upset I heard a conversation with his girlfriend he was upset because they just had a huge argument he couldn't concentrate and we just started talking and we used to go, we started developing French, but I asked him, is there anything I can do to help you out? And we developed a friendship, he started telling me more about this problem. And then next thing I know we're sharing Bible choice told me that there's a Bible study at Cleveland State. So you just develop you just be open to the idea and be listening to if a friend's in trouble mm-hmm. in some capacity. Which kind of is the point of our class, right? Relational evangelism. So you're building a relationship with that person so when the opportunity presents itself you can actually they, they would be willing to listen okay I'm just going to threaten you if you guys all sit here quiet I will break you up <laughs> Jess oh, I'm going to piggyback off of what Joe said like I reflect on the times that I brought up my faith with other people at work it's been um like at times it's when other people are going through things like you said like you just listen to people and you see that they're struggling and I have at times just offered to pray with that person um, especially if it's something that they see as like it, sometimes it's a family member that is in the hospital or something and they're just really distraught about it all and um, or just other family type things that happen I'll just say, do you mind if I just pray with you right now? This seems, you know, really tough. And everybody said yes. And I'm, I'm not saying that that's a magic thing to say. I'm just saying, I know I've talked to people who are unbelievers, and because I've known them and walked through them with things, so I asked that, and then say, okay. And so, you know, through the prayer, to 
just listening to people. One more thing about prayer is that we would often say, well, I'll pray for you. And if you can do it right then, even if it's short, it's much more effective and you haven't forgotten about it during the day while mm-hmm. you're doing other things. Yeah, and following up with them yeah. on that, check in with them and say, hey, how's, how's that going? I see another hand over there. Regular. I don't know how to say concisely what I'm thinking about, but be trying to be a credible person in the eyes of your coworkers. I guess in how you work. In, I mean, I guess I'm thinking of. Have you ever had the experience where someone who's like always forwarding every rumor and conspiracy that comes across their Facebook page? to their friends and then in a situation where there's opportunity for a testimony that person pipes up and starts telling about what God can do and you're like just just be quiet okay <laughs> because you, the person has gotten a reputation of not being credible and so I've thought about that I thought I don't want to be that way so even sometimes if there's something that I think is interesting or whatever if it's not the main, like I used to real in my younger years, I was very much into politics, and I quickly learned that politics can destroy your. You know, spending a lot of time talking about politics can destroy your focus with people. Even if what you're saying is true, it's a distraction oftentimes. So I, you know, many years ago now, decided I the main thing I wanted to talk about with regard to serious topics with people was uh, why I thought we're here and you know what I understand my purpose to be and how God's changed my life so if it's not about work that's one of my favorite that and Apple computers <laughs> but no but seriously, seriously that when it comes to serious topics there's the gospel and there's Apple <laughs> yeah if I'm going to talk about something polarizing with people, it's going to be the gospel. Yeah. I try to put aside other controversial topics yeah. with unbelieving friends, coworkers, relatives, because they're distracting. Apple's pretty polarizing. Yeah. <laughs> it can be. That's true. I, mean, I think the most like beneficial that I've experienced is just when you're talking with somebody and they're going through something like say they're having a hard time with their wife or whatever I like to kind of bring out the practical side of being a Christian and like the blessings that I receive through having Christ in my marriage and I find that that kind of stuff and that's just one example but just the blessings that we receive as a Christian like even through the church Mm -hmm. like you know when I moved people helped me move and I'm telling people at work that, and they're just like, you didn't have to hire, like, people from your church? What what kind of church is that, you know? So I feel like if they're going through a hard time, like, I just talk about the practical side of being Christian. Not that, it, like, I'm trying to sell the benefits of, yeah. but I'm just being sincere, making conversation, like, you know, if, I'm talk- if I hear somebody complain about their wife or whatever, I'll tell them, yeah, I'm not doing that, and I tell them why, and, you know, she builds me up, I try to build her up, we talk about 
and then I'm bringing the gospel into that conversation where he was just you know complaining about his wife and all of a sudden I'm able to give that picture of marriage and the picture of the gospel through marriage to that individual that was just complaining you know what I'm saying yeah so I've found that to be pretty cool and you can pretty much do that with almost anything um like if something bad happens I'm a I'm a supervisor so you know I hear everybody's woes and I'm able to just kind of dovetail whatever they're going through and, and say hey you know things happen for a reason you know this happened to me God showed me this through that you know yeah. and then they kind of oh he's he's one of those spiritual people and then so then if they have quite you know so you right. start the dialogue with kind of like practical stuff mm-hmm. so Sarah? I think as far as like what principle we should also keep in mind that we may be the only Christian that they know depending on like their background like you know we're surrounded by believers we go to church you know many of us grew up in Christian homes we may be the only Christians that they interact with. So our life, our testimony, the conversations we can have may be the, the way that God chooses to use to lead them to the gospel. Yeah, the job that God has put us in might very well be for the specific purpose of not just providing for your own family, but to when that person, you know, to show that person the gospel. I, I appreciate what Matt said about, you know, being able to to um, share with people the benefits of belonging to God in, in relationships with people and, uh, you know, being able to connect with them that way. But there is another side to that, and that's vulnerability. To risk allowing people into who you are and and what you've been through at years. And um, there's no risk really in it anyway because it's God's work. We're sharing truth with people. We're you know we're opening ourselves up to them so that they can see our humanness. There's not any trouble with people at my work seeing my humanness. <laughs> it's, it's too bad. Too uh, anyway. I'm not going to go there. But it, it's just um, if we if we're always you know on our we always have our best face. We want we always want to put our best foot forward in front of people. But but to to be ourselves and not. Um, you know, have a pretense as to who we are with uh, with the world and with the people that we work with. I think we it's it's a just it's just really important to be real and and not be afraid to show you know I'm flawed. Mm-hmm. Just um, one thing I thought about is just my attitude. When I see people, if you're like grumbling and complaining about the weather, I've lived here my whole life and I want to complain about the weather. Most days out of the year. Um, 
Well, if we just have that kind of grumbling spirit, I think, well, if I try to talk to somebody about the gospel, and that brings joy and peace and comfort and hope, that attitude doesn't really match up. And, like, am I really find my life conveying through my attitude that Christ is my everything? Mm-hmm. Anyone else? Um, the other side of that is, it seems like from the beginning we've talked about when, when there's somebody in trouble or, or whatever. What if you, you interact with people, they're, they're having problems. I mean, yeah. or they don't tell you they So you say, okay, I'm Christian. Are you? you go to church? I mean, you know, about approaching <coughs> like that. I don't work, of course, anymore. But when I did, I always made sure that my break time was 15 minutes my lunchtime was whatever, and I felt as though that would help validate the fact that I was um, whatever. It commended your life, or your testimony. Yeah. But but running into people that you don't know, or you don't briefly, like, okay, what what do you do with what I say is, well, what do you do with your day? Yeah. A woman who's I don't know if she works, if she's home, she does. What do you do? And then, then they'll ask me, what do I do? <laughs> you know. I don't know. It's just it's just a little it's a little easier when you run into somebody with an issue. Right. But when they don't have an issue and you just have a friendship. Yeah. Well that, <clears throat> that's actually something that I've been wrestling with and uh I'll, I'm probably going to talk about it next week more, but you know, the idea of boldness. If I truly love that person and I'm truly their friend, I can think of a couple guys at work in particular that I've developed very close friendships with that are unbelievers. I mean, we text all the time, we talk about football, we talk about whatever, yeah. talk about his family, and I've had the chance when he, he's brought some things up, I've had the chance to share the gospel because he's literally asked me, like, well, uh, we were sitting at this place in Allen Park, and he said over lunch, well, hey, um, you know, a friend, a friend of mine just committed suicide. And, uh, like, what does the Bible say about that? You know? And I'm like, here you go. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, like, it, but I was able to share that, but, like, He's never shared, like, another, like, really big problem, right, that would cause him to think in eternal uh, terms like that. And so I've thought about, okay, I just need to, like, dude, I love you too much to not say something to you. Would you give me five minutes to share what I think is the best news in the world? And then, you know, like, be done, you know? And, like, I've had the opportunity to very clearly explain that this is the way that God says you need to go. And then leave it. You know, I can't change his heart. I can't tell him what to do. Um, I, I, I've been contemplating that because other, other, otherwise I'm just waiting for like this, you know, prime opportunity that might never come, right? Joe, you... Yeah, I was going to say that that's what you do. Like, if you're having lunch... If you're just like reading our daily bread, someone says, "Oh, what are you reading? What book are you reading?" Mm-hmm. And that opens the door to say, "Look, I'm a Christian. I love reading this. I like praying." Yeah. You know, 
Madame seeing you doing something, they might be inquisitive. They then start the conversation with you instead of you starting with them. Right. Um, this kind of goes back to the verse we had up there from First Peter about uh, being winning people without conversing with them. Um, once you have, once you've built a relationship, whether it's a working relationship or whatever, and you've had the opportunity from whatever means it might be, it could be politics or current events or uh, a death in the family or illness, or it could be anything that you strike up a conversation about that is not work-related. And you can present the gospel to them or present your side of that situation as a believer, which is probably going to spur questions from them. And you may develop an opportunity to give them the gospel. It may not develop into an opportunity to give them the gospel at that particular time. But six months down the road or three weeks later or whatever, it comes up and you say, hey, how's that? How's the family going? And, well, things are pretty rough. Now you got another opportunity to talk to them. And every time you talk to this person or these people, you don't have to give them the gospel or be, you know, preaching at them. You can just be their friend and and develop that relationship with them and live the kind of life that is an example of that in front of them, as Phyllis and other folks have said, so that they see your life and see the example that you're living and that makes you credible with them when you do present the gospel to I must really know her. Gal must really know what she's talking about because she must believe that because that's what I see in her life. I mean, there's something to this, and maybe it can flourish. And the other, my last point is, we don't have to convert anybody. The work of the Holy Spirit through the Word that's implanted in someone's heart is going to save someone. We're just messengers of the truth. That's all. We can't save anybody. So we're looking for results in terms of, you know, not just on your locker in the locker room of how many people you've won to Christ. That's not what it's all about. It's delivering the gospel and the Holy Spirit will do that do that work. It may never happen in your lifetime. It might be after you're gone that those people can save. So here's a uh five random principles drummed up in my head in in my study so take them for whatever good or bad they are first one put God on the table here's what I mean by that this was the only short way I could put it but talk about God like as a normal everyday course of like he's part of your life and he's an everyday part of your life so talk about him as if he is like, hey, what are you doing this weekend? Oh, well, you know, I'm picking up my kids. We're going to church on Sunday. Or, like, when I got back from my vacation and someone said, hey, did you have a great Thanksgiving? I'm like, it was awesome. I got to golf. I got to hang out with friends that are like family. I got to lead worship on Sunday at my buddy's church. Like, what? And that was the highlight of my entire trip. And... That, but it's that kind of thing where it's like normal everyday conversation. Talk about God, your relationship with Him in the everyday throes of life. 
So someone might call it the water cooler conversations or whatever. I think it's kind of cliche. But put God on the table in everyday conversations. Number two, wisely obey the law. So the reality is, there's. I think it's Title Seven. Could be wrong, but it talks about um, like sharing the gospel, or like basically your religious freedom at work, and and also employers, their ability, like that they can tell you if you can, if you can and cannot communicate about your religious beliefs with. Uh, Clients and things like that, like they. So you have we have to wisely obey the law in 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 our uh, culture where Christ is like being eradicated in like record fashion. It feels like, and all the craziness is hitting the fan for the LGBTQ stuff. And you're like, well, what bathroom am I allowed to go to? And what pronouns do I have to use? And like all this stuff and how like just mind numbing it all is. Like, this is going to be really, really hard to wisely navigate how, how we can share the gospel in the workplace. we got to obey the law. Romans 13 commands it. We have to submit to our authorities that God has put over us. Number three, genuinely love people. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22 says this, and I'll go back so don't freak out if you didn't get it all. It says, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth. So in other words, by submitting to the gospel, by becoming a Christian, you purified yourself by obeying the truth. You repented and believed. So now you have sincere love for each other. Genuine, legit love for each other. Peter says, love one another deeply. Have an intense, enduring, genuine love. Love others out of that Christ-like, gospel-transforming heart that you have. Love others with that same kind of love. So put God on the table, talk about Him, obey the law, Romans 13, genuinely love people, 1 Peter 1. Number four, build relationships inside of work that spill over outside of work. Remember how we talked, uh, I can't remember what lesson it was, but we talked about the idea of refrigerator rights where someone ought to feel comfortable enough in our home that they would feel comfortable to just walk up, grab whatever they want out of the fridge, go sit back down and keep right on talking. Like, that idea where the people that we're relating to, as Joe was talking about, within work, we're building that relationship, let that spill over to outside of work, where you're going to watch a football game together, or you're going to a hockey game, or you're hanging out or doing whatever you do, whether it's sewing or hockey or whatever. Like, let that spill over. Lastly, <clears throat> and we've, we kind of touched on this and kind of danced around it, but I think one of the most important things is this. We must make our testimony credible by being a good employee. If you stink at your job, people are not going to listen to you. If you have a cruddy attitude, people are not going to listen to you. If you just are lazy, people will not listen to you. I actually had a, I pulled a guy aside at work a few months ago who claims to be a believer. He had a very poor reputation. And I finally just got to the point where I'm like, you know what? I need to pull this guy aside. I need to let him know. Because he walked around thinking that he had this really good reputation. All the people want to work with him. And I finally was like, dude, I have no skin in the game other than 
if you were to go try to share the gospel with the unbelievers that you work with, and you claim to be a believer, there's no way they're going to listen to you because you have you have no credibility with them. And that's my number one concern with with. And I hated having that conversation, but I did because there's a ton of people at Jackson Dawson who are Christians who work their tails off to have good good relationships and have credible testimonies. And when one person stinks it up, it affects all of us. And I ain't cool with that. Because I'm one, at least I try to be a good testimony and have a credible testimony. Another kind of wacky example, um, just to uh, show the, the importance of credibility. So last night, I think I've said this enough times, you should know by now, Tim and I play hockey on Tuesday nights. So I've only played hockey for two years. I'm pretty bad. Um, I play on a team with a bunch of pretty good guys who have played hockey for a very long time. Last night, we had one of our most putrid games ever. Um, And we did not play good position. So in other words, all the people that... And it was like this massive domino effect. The forwards were horrible. They didn't play their positions. The defense couldn't clear the puck out of the zone. And it was just a domino effect. The defense couldn't play good defense because the offense wasn't in their place. They had no one to pass to. And it just got bad and more bad and more bad until it was just like we got obliterated. If someone who was good stepped up to the plate and said, Hey guys, you stink play your right position, and we'll get better. They would have listened. If I, two-year hockey player, stood up and said, hey guys, get your act together, let's play positions. They're not going to listen to me. Even if I'm saying the right thing, right? I might be saying the truth, but I have no credibility. So they're going to look at me like, you're an idiot. I'm like, yeah, okay, you're right. Right? But the same thing is true here. If it were, we're terrible. But then we try to say the truth, and we wonder, why aren't they listening to me? Well, it's because you have no credibility. we got to have credibility. Just a couple texts to support this. I won't read the whole thing. But look at the very end of verse 10. It says, so that in every way, in this context, is a really good one to write down and listen to because it talks about employer-employee relationship, master and slaves. But it says, so that in every way... They will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. So in the way you work, are you making the gospel attractive? Yikes. And a little bit more generic, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 says that we are called to live a life worthy of the gospel. So in other words, we must represent God well. If I'm a hockey fan and I'm a Red Wings fan, I go to a Red Wings game with a Colorado Avalanche jersey on, it would be like a cardinal sin against the Detroit Red Wings. Can I get an amen? Yes, thank you. But if I'm going to represent them all, if I'm going to be a Red Wings fan, I'm a good one, I'm going to go with my Pavel Datsuk jersey, and I'm going to be a raving lunatic in all red. Right? Well, if I'm going to be a credible testimony... For Christ in the workplace, I must represent Him well. I've been called to be His disciple. I've been called to be His ambassador. So my life must represent Him well. The the way I work, the way I talk, the way I act, the way I live, must reflect Him well. So there's the five things. If you didn't, I'll leave them up there. But 
Just go do it. Share the gospel. Be bold. And communicate this life-saving message to those that you are spending 40 to 50 hours a week with. Because they need it. Dear God, thank you for this time. Convict our hearts. Give us boldness. Help us just to go share this good news. In your name we pray.